My name is Jason Dubray, and this is the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. Each week, I'm going to give away one movie from my physical movie collection. Please enjoy this week's episode. Shedding Movie Show. Today we're going to take a look at two amazing filmmakers, Danny Boyle and David Fincher. We're going to review three movies from each filmmaker with my guest Dan Boudet. We will each distribute 60 points among the six films and at the end the movie that has the lowest total will be leaving my movie collection. It's really important with this episode to know that there will be some spoilers and I would encourage you to see the movies before you listen to our reviews of them and there may be some chorus language. Let's get into some discussion of two great filmmakers. Alright, I am here with Dan Boudet. Uh, yeah. So Dan and I have encountered each other at English teacher things over the years. Yes. Um, uh, I would consider your your partner Vicky a mentor of mine, and she taught me and mine too. Yeah, taught me in university, and yeah. um, so we we we've run into each other. And when I decided I was going to to start on this podcast, uh, you were kind of voluntold by by Vicky or well, uh, something. Like yeah, that. and and I, I mentioned it. I think somehow in your discussion of what the podcast was going to be, you mentioned David Fincher somewhere yeah. in there. And I'm like, if for a good two decades, if you asked me what my favorite movie was, I would say, oh, it's Seven mm -hmm. by David Fincher. And so, like, yeah, if you can throw that up line out there. And it's like, okay, cool, let's do it. I'm like, okay, great. Let's and so it. I kind of pieced this together based on Seven. But yeah, I thought of, I was trying to think of another filmmaker who's sort of a contemporary. Right. Uh, have had, had a big break, was working at it, but had a big break in the 90s and yeah. has been pretty solid in making uh, interesting films for, for as you said, the last 20 years. So I thought of the Scottish director, Danny Boyle. And uh, that actually, you answered a question I was going to have was, why would you pair these two directors against each other? But yeah. if you're, if we're looking at it in terms of they brought out good material at the mm -hmm. same time, just on different sides of the pond, sure, and, and that makes sense. And, and after I, I pieced this together, I, I started thinking of several other films from both filmmakers yeah. that, could be included here too. Yeah. Um, they're 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 known for certain things. I I think Danny Boyle has been known for either re revitalizing zombies through Twenty Eight Days yes. Later yeah. and uh, drug movies because of Train Spotting. Yeah. David Fincher is known as creating these great serial killer movies, but yeah. there's a lot more to him here. Um, One of the things that I thought was interesting about Fincher and I, as soon as I heard this, I went, well, of course, that makes sense, is how much he did in terms of music videos. Yes. And you saw that in immediately in Alien 3. And yes. I think Alien 3 is a horribly underrated film. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, coming off of Aliens with you know, James Cameron, of course, Alien 3 is going to disappoint people who are hoping for that visceral action film. But... I remember what coming out of the theater with my friends and my friends were like, oh, that, 
that movie wasn't that great. I'm like, what are you talking about? It was beautiful. It was a beautiful looking film, and just some of the the, the cinematography and the little moments. I'm like, then when I heard, oh, he's a he did music videos. I'm like, well, that makes sense. Yeah. Because he's not afraid to play with lighting and angles and speed and what have you. So when Seven comes out, I'm I'm already my buy-in is there because uh, I like what he did with Alien Three, and then that movie. I remember just having. A, a visceral reaction to it. I love that film. Yeah. Was Alien Three your first exposure to David yeah, Fincher? Yeah, yeah. Mine too. I, I mean, I didn't really <laughs> clock the uh, the director. Yeah. Because I was watching the first three Alien movies in a sleepover with some friends, yeah. and uh, and I was just like, oh, this is the next part. I remember too not hating Alien Three. Yeah. And it, it is a. Uh, it's considered such a. A toxic film. It'd be interesting yeah. to have you on to talk about Alien Three because I have a, a show set up for what I call Hollywood disappointments. Yeah, because and it was considered a disappointment, but but it it was a disappointment in what came before it. And if you look at Alien Three's script and some of the concept art that came out for that, you're like, well, that's a disappointment because that looked like a really interesting film. But it came together, you know. And, and you talk about like, well, was this my first exposure to Fincher? I guess not if you think about the videos he did. Yes. But you didn't know. You didn't know it was him. You don't have, like, you don't yeah. pay attention to it. Like, mm -hmm. But um, if you look at something like Fight Club and you look at Seven and then you realize, oh, he did Jamie's Got a Gun. Yeah. That's so incredibly evident. Yeah. Uh, and the lighting on things like um, Cradle of Love by Billy Idol and, um, you know, Vogue with Madonna, like the way he, he lights things, the way he frames things, mm -hmm. the... the the way that just capturing people moving in a silhouette. It was preparation for the, the, the features he would make. Yeah, and he also did commercials as well. Yeah. So, it, and maybe you started to see that in the 90s. It was people starting to experiment a little bit more with mm -hmm. the movie and what film can be. Yeah. You know, and so, yeah, that's, that's where you see that music video influence come mm -hmm. out. And also music videos sort of trained audiences to accept oh, this is what storytelling can be as well. Or this is what, you know, image, moving images can be this. And so then when you put it up on a big screen, everyone's like, oh yeah, so the, the much music MTV generation is willing to look at a movie that does something very visually interesting. You know, so. Like I think of something like uh, uh, Being John Malkovich, for mm -hmm. example. Yeah, Spike, Spike Jones movie. Yeah, yeah, the Spike Jones movies, who also does. He worked in that... Yeah, in music, in the music oh, video industry. Yeah. So it's okay. You're ready to go along with it. Yeah, it's not traditional cinema, but it is fascinating. So I do suspect, in this, if we treat this as a boxing match, you're probably your your money would be on Fincher over Danny Boyle. My my money is on two of our three Fincher films. Okay, that doesn't mean the third one is bad. But I'm t you know if if the premise of the show is which DVDs do we need to send packing and yeah. which DVDs do we hold on to yeah. then that will come up later but okay. when, we, when we hit that particular sure. film we'll mention it. Um, what, what was the first uh, time you, you clocked Danny Boyle? You, you noticed uh, I didn't guy? I didn't notice the name honestly until you mentioned it oh okay and so, so, so it's like the movies of Danny Boyle I'm like well okay who is this guy? Click, yeah. click, click, click. I'm like oh that guy oh yeah yeah okay, oh, okay. Yeah, train spotting done yeah. Slumdog Millionaire yeah. done yeah. okay gotcha I'm in there but but you weren't thinking of it as much as like you're, 
you're paying your money because David Fincher is the director of this, but you saw these movies because you heard about the movies and the yeah, stories. exactly. But you weren't if, as if, aware of... Uh, correct. Boyle. Okay. Correct. So the, the Fincher name, even though I haven't seen all of his work, but the Fincher mm-hmm. name is an instant buy-in for a lot of stuff. Like, I'm like, okay, well, I know he directed it. I know, therefore, it will look a certain way, or I'm, I have certain expectations now. Meanwhile, the other ones were, like, if you had told me, oh, yeah, Slumdog Millionaire and Transpotting are the same guy. I'm like, oh, uh, okay, sure. Really? I mean, yeah. <laughs> they have a lot of running in them. I guess that makes sense, <laughs> you know? But I never would have went, like, oh, yeah, that's definitely... A Danny Boyle film. Yeah. And the three films are very different looking movies. I, I do think within the context of where we are looking at kind of the, the serial killer, darker realm of Fincher's uh, canon here. Yeah. Uh, and there are differences, yeah. but maybe they're a, a little bit harder to distinguish yeah. than with uh, Boyle, who obviously, I mean, like, uh, a lot of people would say, well, why aren't we talking about 28? days later in yeah. here because that's such an influential film of course um and i have a digital copy of it but i don't actually have a physical copy of that right. movie but that's completely different than the three we're going to talk about it too is. so it shows yeah. what a great filmmaker he is that he can yeah he yeah. can jump again, into these different worlds yeah, again you if you told me 28 days later was one of his <laughs> i'd be like really like the guy knows how to wear a lot of diverse hats yeah in terms of how he yeah. presents things yeah very much so. So I'm just going to mention the uh, the six movies we're looking at here. And uh, we kind of agreed to just go uh, alternate between yeah, Fincher sure. and Boyle. We're going to start off with Seven, which you, you've, you've mentioned. So I already have an, a hint that you, you like this yeah. movie a lot. Then we're going to look at Train Spotting, um, followed by uh, Fincher's Fight Club, Slumdog Millionaire, which was the one that Danny Boyle won an Academy Award for. Right. Uh, then uh, Fincher's Zodiac. And we'll end off uh, with Steve Jobs. Yes. And uh, those are the films. So cool. thank you so much for, uh, for coming and doing this. Oh, thank you for having me. Do you like what you do for a living? These things you see? You have to wear blinders sometimes. Most times. Detective William Somerset is looking for a way out. You're retiring. Six more days and you're all the way gone. So how long have you lived here? Too long. Detective David Mills is looking for a way in. We'll be spending every waking hour together from now until the time I leave. I'll show you who your friends and enemies are. Look, I'm going to come inside five years. Not here. Now, they're caught in a game. No fingerprints. No witnesses of any kind. Nope. About the only thing we know about that guy right now is he's totally insane. Where the price of sin is death. Okay, so I remember the good old days when I would open uh, the Star Phoenix lifestyle section and I would see movies, uh, the new movies for the week. Yeah. And usually there'd be some publicity, some advertising. But strangely enough, there was this movie in 1995... Uh, that had a very small advert yeah. and it was called Seven but it was like Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt are in this like yeah. this has got to be a big movie but it had almost no publicity and I didn't know a whole lot about it it was a bit of a mysterious film right. until I saw it and then after I saw it it was almost a mysterious film too because yeah. this movie is 
so rewatchable. Absolutely. You will never, Absolutely. and that'll be the case with a lot of movies we talk about, yeah. you will never be able to process everything that's going on yeah. in yeah. a single viewing. Yes, absolutely. So, I think I was expecting, there's a line that uh, Morgan Freeman has in there, that if, uh, with involving the serial killer, that if the devil himself appears, yeah. then uh, that's the only way this would meet our expectations. Yeah. I think I had an idea of what this movie was about, and it wasn't exactly that, yeah. because so much is in shadows, so I thought it would almost be like some sort of a gore festival or something more like that. It is uh, it is scarier the older I get yeah. and the more I view individual scenes, but the impact is unreal. Yeah, when I was in university, I remember I took a class on gothic literature, and the subject came up of Edgar Allan Poe, mm-hmm. and he said that it was either my professor or an article we were reading, but it talked about how Edgar Allan Poe was noteworthy because he made you think the horror. Mm-hmm. He didn't have to describe something horrible. He just had to describe maybe something before or something after. And it's your brain that fills in the gaps. Mm-hmm. And that's what's really what's so bloody frightening about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a great Edgar Allan Poe story. If I'm going to go off on a weird tangent here. That's uh, fine. Yeah, Edgar Allan Poe story <laughs> called Baron Nietzsche. Oh, yeah. Baron Nietzsche, this guy has this obsessive disorder where he thinks of something he, he finds beautiful or intriguing and then he blacks out and loses all sense of time and what have you. And in the story, he falls in love with a woman and it's her smile that he finds so beautiful. And he blacks out and she's sleeping in another room and he blacks out and when he wakes up, he's holding a box and there's, there's something rattling in the box. And you know, it, it doesn't go so explicit as to say, and it is her teeth, because that would just be like right. too over the top. But after a while, you're like, oh, that's awful. What Seven does is it gives you the sense that you've, you're watching something violent, but it really isn't. It's all the stuff that's before and after. Yeah. And with every crime scene, you realize like, oh, something horrible went down here mm-hmm. and it's up to us. There's no flashback to, you know, the scene between the killer and the victim. Yeah. It's just that we had to think that moment for ourselves and that's really chilling. And that's what the lesser copycats of yeah. Seven was very influential. Yes. I mean, I would say the, uh, the, the, the way I would trace it a little bit is um, Silence of the Lambs. Right. Came out. There was a bit of an influence in Seven, even though they're quite different films. Yeah. Seven led to Saw, so we can already yes. see we're getting into diminishing returns here. Yeah. And then we have all these serial killer TV shows. Yeah. But you you point out the the big difference there is in the TV shows or in Saw, they they have all of these flashbacks to try to make things yeah. make sense and really spoon feed the audience. Seven doesn't do that. And another thing that Seven. Did well. It was one of those summers, or when Seven came out. I can't remember if it was the summer, but it's one of those times when you had two movies come out that are kind of similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Seven was very close to Copycat. Yeah, yeah, they were within a month or two. Of yeah, each other. And, yeah, and Copycat was a fine film for what it was. Yeah, I like it. But yeah. Seven, I did it. I think so much better. No, number one, cinematography in terms of cinematography and the shooting of it. Um, this is a phrase I'm going to say for a lot of these films, but it's taking beautiful images of ugly things. Yes. And so it's these ugly set pieces like the gluttony mm-hmm. set, you know, that 
that massive man lying face down on spaghetti or the uh, uh, the sloth set with all the little trees hanging and it's mm-hmm. it's beautifully shot images of horrible horrible things mm-hmm. but one thing that seven was really neat looking you know, I was thinking about it as I was driving over here is unlike other serial killer stories as soon as we know that those first two murders are part of a series we're in we're locked yeah. in because now we've got a checklist yeah. to go through and we know there's going to be five more of these things yeah. and so while you're watching it you're like you're asking yourself several different questions one how are they going to catch this guy mm-hmm. two who is doing it and three how is he going to kill someone based on this one or this one what's this one you're going to look like yeah and when this I remember when this finally got the video uh, I rented it immediately. I'd seen it in the theater, but I rented it immediately yeah. and I showed it to my sister. And every so often she'd pause and she goes, Okay, how many are left? You know, which ones haven't we hit yet? And then her uh, watching her ponder, like, What are these ones going to look like? Yeah. It's one of the few serial killer or crime thrillers where you're like, I kind of hope they don't catch him because you want to see. You want to see how this is going to yeah, play out. If yeah. You, if, you, if they caught him after, you know, victim three, mm-hmm. you're like, But we didn't get to this one. We, you know, and so you well, it wouldn't be a movie then. No, I, I, no. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even we kind of know what's going to go. All seven will happen. Yeah, totally unexpected. Yes. Now, I, I do have a a spoiler warning, so just of in course. case you're thinking of that. But I'm yeah. going to say, and I say said it before, if you have never for some reason seen seven, yeah, pause right now, yeah. watch seven, and then listen to what we're talking about, yes. because it will totally ruin the, the experience for you. <laughs> yeah. Um. So one of the other really clever things with publicity is like less publicity. Too much. Yeah. We see too much of the movies now. I, I feel yeah. like I've seen them before I actually see them. Yeah. I, I remember, uh, and, and I didn't get to see it in theaters, uh, unfortunately. I, I saw it on video. And there's a telephone conversation that happens yeah. with uh, the killer. Yeah. Um, and I was like, Man, that sure sounds like Kevin Spacey. Yes. But I watched the credits. Yeah. And Spacey's name wasn't mentioned. Yeah. And, and a lot had been done to make sure that wasn't the case. They wanted there to be a surprise. Yeah. And so they, it was odd to see a high profile actor not be mentioned yeah. in that role. And then, oh, wow, it's, it's him. So. And that was his breakout year. I mean, he was yeah. working in a lot of stuff, but he, that was the same year as Usual Suspects. Yeah. Oddly enough, uh, him and Brad Pitt were no- nominated against each other for supporting actor for different movies because Twelve yeah. Monkeys also came out yeah. that year. Yeah. Yeah, and it's funny because the movie, I think Seven, the towards the end of it, in that last sort of scene, I think there's almost a Man- Mandela effect there because I remember when I watched that in the theater and. Somerset opens the box. I swore to God I could see blonde hair sticking out. Did you? And going back years later, I'm like, wait, there's no blonde hair there. You know? And even when they were sending screeners around of the film, apparently, to different reviewers, they had tucked blonde hair in. So you open oh. it up, this blonde hair would come out. And, but that never appears in the actual film. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Seven is like, uh, it's so intriguing. Like I spent a lot of time looking at some of the behind the scenes pieces and the, the way it was constructed. Um, for example, like they never established what city it's in. No. And so there's moments where you think like, well, this is obviously New York or maybe, no, it's gotta be Chicago. And then there's a, the mm-hmm. last sequence. You're like, are they in California somewhere? Yeah. Because of 
the yeah, desert yeah. scene and what have you. And so that's mm. an interesting bit. Um, one, of the, one of the things I wrote down about it, I said it's film noir in color. Yeah. You know, and the idea of watching, you know, our detective chase our villain and they're both wearing overcoats and fedoras. Yeah. yeah. And yet it seems... Especially Morgan Freeman, how he's costumed. Yeah. yeah. And, and it, it makes sense. Like, it just, it looks, it looks fine. You wouldn't really see that maybe in real life, but it looks good in terms of the, the visual of it. I should probably mention plot. Uh, essentially, they, uh, it's the last week of Morgan Freeman's career as a detective. Yes. He is burnt out. Yeah. Uh, he has had enough with the city and he is not seeing any good in the world anymore. And we have this fresh detective uh, played by Brad Pitt. Yep. He's just starting the job. He's basically taking Freeman's job yep. here. Um, he thinks he knows a lot, but he is uh, fairly naive. Mm -hmm. And this covers a week where they discover is, there's a serial killer using the seven deadly sins uh, on several uh, victims. Some of them very high profile, some mm -hmm. of them low profile. And it goes very, very dark. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And from the beginning to the end, Morgan Freeman knows exactly what's going on. Very early on, he is telling his, you know, commanding yeah. officer like this should not be Brad Pitt's first yeah. job. And and what we start to see is the patience, the calmness of Freeman. How he he tries to figure out a case, and he uses his brain, and he goes right. to the library, and he does reading, and Pitt. Is just wants to get this guy, and he this wants to. Head. He yeah. basically wants to uh, end the, end him. Like yeah. if he could, he would kill him right then and there. Yeah. Um, and you see how that is. It's almost Shakespearean. How what a tragic flaw that is, and how that gets exploited as the the film goes on. And the movie touches on one thing about Morgan Freeman's career as playing these fatherly figures. Mm -hmm. And these mentor yeah. type figures, and we see that, of course, in Shawshank as well, yeah. um, which was just a year before, right, so it, right. it felt very familiar. Yeah, yeah, and also a great little performance by Arlie Ermey. Yes, the, he's always as the captain, like just he was a little bit more toned down in yeah, some ways in this one, yeah, which was it, which it's was not nice. A full metal jacket, but it's it's it works. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then we two other prominent actors. I think this was kind of the uh, the first time that I took note of Gwyneth Paltrow. Correct. Gwyneth Paltrow plays Brad Pitt's wife. Uh, she's afraid to say how uncomfortable she is in this new city in this yeah. new arrangement. Um, she's discovered she's pregnant, and she doesn't know how to tell her husband about this because he's so in love with being a big city detective. Yeah, and it's not a place for children. It is not a place for children. And then, as we've already mentioned, Kevin Spacey, who, yep. uh, spoilers, is, in fact, the serial killer, yep. has a great entrance, even though he makes an appearance, we don't see his face Correct. early on, and we hear his voice at one point yep. uh, earlier in the film, but an, an epic um, first appearance when, when, we, when we see his face yep. there. And those are the kind of the notable, there's some other people, there's, Richard Roundtree, who is Shaft, yeah. is in there. There's a um, small cameo, it's not a cameo, but... Um, John C. McGinley yes. as the SWAT captain, California. I, I remember looking at him like, God, he looks so familiar. But it wouldn't be that guy because this role isn't nearly big enough for him. And he's also uh, part of the sloth scene. Yes. Because right? yeah. he's in there and, yeah. and famously he, he whispers to this emaciated person yes. tied to a bed, 
you got what you deserve. And then the guy comes to life and he is, yeah. he is not actually yeah. dead, but that's, he is. That's and that's the biggest jump scare in yeah, the movie. That was, and see that in the theater and watch an entire I bet, audience I bet. reel back like they weren't expecting Because they pretty much pronounced him dead and he, yeah. and he wasn't. Um, all right, so we, I, I think we both really, really like this yeah, film. Yeah, and um, I want to shout out one other thing about oh, the yeah, movie sure. that I think needs to be mentioned is the opening credit sequence. Yes. The idea of watching the construction of the, the journals. Mm-hmm. And that was done because the original opening was just uh, Morgan Freeman on a train because he originally it was shot that he was, because he's retiring, they found a farmhouse that he was going to renovate. And there's a wonderful scene mm-hmm. where he takes out a switchblade and he carves off a piece of the, the wallpaper and puts that in his wallet. And that actually, that piece of wallpaper shows up, I think, later on in the film mm-hmm. at one point. But it, there's no context for it, obviously. And they were either running low on budget or running out on, on time. And they're like, well, what are we going to do for an opening sequence? And then you're like, oh, that's, that's Fincher going back to his, you know, his music video training yeah. and doing this wonderful construction of the journals laid over and over top of that is closer by nine inch nails Mm -hmm. and it's like yeah that's which would also i think be part of fincher and trent reznor yes part of their collaboration would start there and it's just so interesting and so many movies afterwards would copy that it was not the first movie to do something like that but just to drop that in was really really clever (laughs) it's funny because remember years later I was what you know showing uh, To Kill a Mockingbird with my students. Yeah, it has a similar opening sequence as there's a you know it the does. journal and everything, and you <laughs> see the different stuff, and you're like, wait, are Jim Scout serial killers? Like this is is Boo really gonna die? <laughs> What's going on here? Because you're like that is oh it, it looks so reminiscent. So yeah, be an interesting take on To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, yeah, I'm um, yeah, but like I said, I'm a huge huge fan of this movie. So as far as uh, a, a review, just to give it some some layers. What would you say is the biggest weakness of Seven? It has plot holes. Yeah, you know, there's some when when you apply logic to some of the things, there is some plot holes there, um, particularly in terms of how certain people maybe die or you know the the sloth setup, and it's like we walked in here one year to the which begs the you know that makes you ask the question that every day he must show up and put like one camera or one picture before one picture after mm-hmm. just in case it's like are they gonna get it today no okay but this guy would have a lot of time and yeah. well i guess they explain he's independently wealthy yeah for some reason and yeah um try to cover their bases that way but yeah and it, it, maybe some of the some of the dialogue is a little forced but then again it was the 90s and what have mm-hmm. you so you know looking back on it you might be a little more critical but like i said it's so rewatchable Oh, it, and, oh, it is. Yeah, yeah. So, I, for for me, I guess if I was to criticize something, it might be unpopular. I, Brad Pitt's performance isn't that difficult. No, I don't no. think that was a stretch for him, because he just he 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 gets angry and he is naive and yeah. he's threatening and that's what he plays over and over again, and just to me, Freeman just acts him under the table. Yeah. He is very one-dimensional, and, and so is Freeman to a certain point, because he's like, I'm the retiring sage, and you are this mm-hmm. hothead. But that almost gives it a fable-like quality, yeah. you know, that these are these people, and this is who they are, and, you know, you mentioned Shakespeare earlier, and it's like, we're not going to see a lot of nuance, but maybe that's not the nature of the story, I know. So, yeah. It's a fabulous film. It is. And I approve of your choice of it as your favorite movie, so. Yeah. 
I imagine it's going to uh, grade quite well here. Good. Choose life. Choose a job. Choose a career. Choose a family. Choose a big television. You're a quiet, sensitive type. A little bit crazy, a little bit bad. Choose washing machines, cars, compact displays, and dental insurance. You lied on your application. Only to get my foot in the door. What exactly attracts you to the leisure industry? And what? Pleasure. One year uh, into the future uh, is where I first clocked Danny Boyle with uh, this movie Train Spotting. Um, and it, it was a big hit. Uh, the 90s, I think, British cinema emerged a little bit more and not just costume dramas or masterpiece theater. Uh, we're looking at working class and lower class people. And so Train Spotting is about a group of young men who are addicted to heroin and uh, we focus on a narrator played by Ewan McGregor and this was kind of his big break as well who's at points trying to kick the habit but goes back and forth and uh, then we encounter a bunch of his friends we encounter one guy played by Robert Carlyle who does not do drugs but is a mean drunk and is essentially a psychopath yeah and uh, causes all kinds of problems for uh, these uh, characters. And then it, the movie does lead to uh, this kind of quasi-high-level drug deal and um, a bit of a heist, which feels very, very familiar. Yeah. Uh, I've wrestled with this movie a lot. I think I wrestled with it. I was back to wrestling with it again on this viewing. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the same case with another movie we're going to talk about. Where I almost feel like it's too light. And you know, we see horrifying yeah. things, but there's this kind of comical, easygoing uh, approach to very, very serious addiction. It is whimsical. Yeah, whimsical is a yeah. good word for it. And especially when, like, there's that sequence where Ewan McGregor is renting, goes diving in a toilet. And, yes. you know, it has this almost dreamlike quality as he goes swimming through this crystal blue water looking for suppositories and the, yeah and the, and the music so what what a perfect day i think yeah. you know it's yeah. a terrific soundtrack it is it, don't it, get me wrong i love the soundtrack but. yeah and it, that made me like after rewatching it i was asking myself like did he do music videos as well because of the use of music and i think orbital is also in there a little bit later mm -hmm. uh, and of course that opening sequence with a pop yeah and you know it's a musically charged it is charged piece and I think you're right. Like, I remember watching this. I'm like, this makes heroin look kind of fun. Like, there's mm -hmm. no, even, there's no real dark side to it as much. I mean, there, you get the sequence of the baby crawling on the ceiling and, and whatnot. But you're well, right. It's, it's... The baby, there's, there's what would be a crib death. Yeah. Um, because the mother's a, a junkie yeah. and everybody around and... Uh, there's this mystery about whose kid this is, and we kind yeah. of find out that it's uh, Sick Boy, played by Johnny Lee Miller, yeah. was the father, um, and he has his problems too. If it wasn't yeah. for the Robert Carlyle character, he'd be yeah. probably the most psychopathic, yeah. but he does have more humanity, more character, yeah. I think. So getting back to the idea of it being whimsical, um, Spud, the, the character played by Ewan Bremner, yeah. is this whimsical kind of clownish figure and Big you know, time. there's a great moment where he's like applying for a job and you know he's 
he's on edge and he's so hyped up and everything and you're like these guys are kind of likable mm-hmm. and he takes uh, speed I think he's trying to blow the yeah. interview right and, yeah yeah he has to look like he's trying but yeah. at the same time screw up just enough um, but it, it's an interesting film in terms of the it's it's almost like episodic like here's this little little segments that don't necessarily connect the way you would expect a standard narrative to connect. Um, one thing that's noteworthy is based on the novel by Irvin Welsh. Yeah. And that is a book that is really fascinating to read. I don't know if you've read it or not. It I is... hesitate to say I haven't, which is... It, it's a book that... I feel like I should have at this You point. have to read it out loud. <laughs> because he writes in this guttural Scottish accent, the way that heroin junkies would talk. And it has almost a Flowers for Algernon-like quality to it mm. because the English gets better as our narrator gets off off of the smack and then when he goes back on for a little bit, the English gets worse. But I bring it up because I've used clips from Trainspotting and clips or segments from the book mm. to teach creative writing students about monologue. Okay. And it's great for these wonderful, like that opening monologue. Yeah, choose life. Yeah, yeah. Choose this. Da, 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 da. And it's a fascinating way to, to, to frame things. Um, he, he does it in a few other scenes where Ewan McGregor, as the narrator, is very engaging and very mm-hmm. interesting. Um, but overall, it's not as a tightly woven narrative. It just kind of. Ends. Like, there's not a massive climax to it. It's just like, oh, and here's the resolution. If I was to point out the climax, so into spoilers, I don't think this, us talking about the end of it is going to ruin it as yeah. much as some of the movies we're talking yeah. about here. After these Scottish guys have pulled off uh, this heist, they've really been kind of screwed over by this yeah. major drug dealer, but they're, like, not aware of that. Yeah. Um, and they're just so excited. But then they don't trust each other. Yeah. With good reason. And... Somebody is going to rip somebody off, and our narrator, Ewan McGregor, is the one who decides to do this, and it's kind of this dangerous escape from a hotel mm-hmm. room with uh, Robert Carlyle um, uh, Begsby. Yeah. Uh, he's actually sleeping with the money because he doesn't trust the other guys because he yeah. views them as these, these heroin junkies that he can you know get rid of and keep the money for himself. Uh, and McGregor gets out of there... Um, he he does sort of take care of his friend who yeah. um, Spud. Spud who Spud actually goes to jail when they both should have gone for jail for something earlier. So yeah, uh, and he's such a sweet guy because they talk about what they're gonna do with the money. He wants to take care of his mother. Yeah, you know he's a sweet guy. He just is just does not make the right choices. Is not the right. He gets himself just involved in this world. I, that's what I would argue is the climax. Yeah, and I was, you also, if you're willing to sit through a little bit of the of the the, the credits, yeah. you get the moment where the locker opens up mm-hmm. and there's Spud and there's a stack yeah. of cash yeah. and you're like, oh, okay, good. It all, yeah. the He's people sort of that we liked, care of. yeah, the people that we liked are taken care of and the ones yeah. that we don't care about, fine, mm-hmm. that's okay. Yeah. There's but, indeed a sequel, it's a passable sequel, I think. I just, I can't get past maybe it's and I don't know why, why this is the case because there's other movies where I can watch and they're just absolutely awful but I can I can defend yeah but there's something about the morality of this that I, I think is potentially dangerous yeah uh, if you I think a movie that handled the subject better and you walk away feeling sick 
because it was handled better is Killing Zoe. Okay. Uh, yep. Which is was produced by Quentin Tarantino and mm-hmm. features this idea of these uh, it basically it's it's drug sex and violence yeah uh, not in that order it begins with you know sex and then there's this whole drug sequence as these bank robbers are spending time shooting heroin and doing drugs and just a horrible ugly life of it all and then this violent bank robbery gone wrong mm-hmm. and you're like this is not a lifestyle that is enjoyable in the least this is just awful from beginning to end and that tone that that film really sets is something that train spotting could have hit a little mm-hmm. bit better but um, but I, I remember watching train spotting in the theater this was after this was, it was one of the secondary theaters so after it had done its run it's probably now, rainbow yeah now we're talking yeah, about I was working at rainbow when it was uh, happening yeah, yeah and so I, m- I remember watching it and it's being amused by it by these sequences um it w- it's not a movie that is going to tell anyone to quit doing drugs. No. I, I Everybody, you know, yeah. the main characters come out of this thing alive. Yeah. But it's that that whimsy of it all mm-hmm. is... Yeah, yeah, when I watched it for this show, to, to go back and look at it again, I was less impressed with it than I was the yeah. first time I saw it. Um, I think it's got its moments still, but uh, and it's very clever bits. Just with the the use of um, putting text on the screen, like you yes. know, the dirtiest, you know, the worst toilet, toilet in Scotland, yeah. yeah, and what have you, and it's, and got, it's a pretty bad toilet. Yeah. yeah, it's got it's got its moments, mm-hmm. these cute little flashback scenes and whatnot, and you're cut with the music, but it does it didn't. I remembered it better than when I actually watched it, and yeah. I think I liked it better as a memory than rewatching it. I think visually it's outstanding. Yes, you can tell it's a very talented uh, filmmaker. Absolutely. But, yeah, for whatever reason, I just get stuck on the message, you know, whether it, they meant it to be that or not. I mean, it is satirical in yeah. nature, and one of my favorite movies is A Clockwork Orange. Ah, yeah. And I think it's comparable, but there's, there's something in there where I can get behind A Clockwork Orange uh, because of how biting the satire is. I, I think this isn't it's dark, but it's not biting enough if this is to be a... A satire, or if there is a greater message here. Yeah, so, correct. Uh, for a just say no to drugs movie or whatever you want, Requiem for a Dream is yeah. the one I would think of yeah. because it is just exhausting and brutal, and that's what you should be walking out of a movie about heroin or about drug addiction. Yeah. I want you to hit me as hard as you can. Why? How much can you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight? Wait, let me start earlier. Like many of you, I was stuck. You want me to deprioritize my current reports until you advise of a status upgrade? Make these your primary action items. I couldn't sleep. No, you can't die from insomnia. I'd flip through catalogs and wonder, what kind of dining set defines me as a person? This is your life, and it's ending one minute at a time. I prayed for a different life. Soap. I make and I sell soap. And this is how I met Tyler Durden. Come on, hit me before I lose my nerve. Okay. Ow! You hit me in the ear! It was on the tip of everyone's tongue. Can I be next? We just gave it a name. Gentlemen, welcome to Fight Club. All right, now we're leaping ahead to 1999, which was an exceptional year for film. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this is our second Fincher film, Fight Club. 
Fight Club is essentially about an insomniac who uh, discovers that the only way he can express emotion and get some sleep is by going to these various self-help groups for Correct. people who are dying one, one way or the other. Then he encounters this uh, guy named uh, Tyler uh, Durden um, on an airplane. And a whole set of circumstances happen where this this man's apartment blows up and right. he's homeless. So he goes and lives with Tyler in this dilapidated house and they decide to start a fight club because they've never been in a fight and how can they know what they're really about unless they fight? And this idea catches on, it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it sort of goes beyond our narrator character. Our narrator is played by Edward Norton, who is reliable. Uh, he's also known as being a very difficult actor, but he's a very reliable actor. Um, Brad Pitt, who I, I was a little bit critical of Seven. I do like his performance in Seven. Yes. And in some ways it's more subtle oh, absolutely. than in Fight yeah. Club. Yeah. But because of what we find out, there are reasons that Pitt has to play uh, big in, in this movie. And I th think he does a great job. I think the underrated actor in this is Helena Bonham Carter, who's mm -hmm. just another great actor. I, I feel like she's been kind of given the label of working too much with her husband, Tim Burton, and these kind of gothic, comedic roles. But she's, she's solid. She's in the new season of the show The Crown. Right. Uh, has some amazing scenes in that. Okay, so again, spoilers in here. This is a rewatchable film. There's a big, big plot twist. And her performance becomes so much better when you rewatch it, yes. knowing what you know. And the first time, you can just dismiss it as like, why, why did she pick this role? She's yeah. kind of this person who wants to die, and she's attached herself to a man. Yeah. And it's, you know, in some ways almost exploited. But it, yeah, it's, it's so not, much more interesting when you know... It's not just a movie end. that's rewatchable. It's a movie that you have to watch it twice. Because it, it, the first time you watch it, you have that, oh wow, moment at the, the end when the, the, it is revealed, spoiler, that uh, our Ed Norton character, who incidentally is nameless. He doesn't have a name, yeah. yeah. And Brad Pitt are in fact the same person. These are just two, mm -hmm. Brad Pitt is a, or a, not an alter ego, but a, a different aspect this, of his. This guy is basically schizophrenic. Yeah, it's and a, this is a, or an idea like this is what I wish I could be, mm -hmm. and then when you rewatch mm -hmm. the relationship between Helena Bonham Carter and our Edward Norton character, so much of their dialogue, the nature of it changes. You know, like when Did she when they have sex for the first time, and, and she comes into the kitchen, and he's like, "What are you doing here? I live here. Yeah, you, get out of here. Get like out of like here. treats and her then, like garbage, and then she's all mad." I said, "Well, of course you'd be because you just." You didn't have sex with Brad Pitt. You had sex with Edward Norton, and but we're thinking that he's and he, which yeah. he is. He's so jealous, yeah, because yeah. he he is attracted to her, uh, but yet they have this antagonistic relationship. And so you're yeah. getting a little bit of a quasi Sam and Diane and Cheers yes. vibe here. Well, they just don't get along and, and In never the worst will. Possible way, yeah. But then it's it's a lot deeper, and you can understand yeah. her total confusion. Yes. As as it builds up towards the end yeah. of, of the film, but also like I, I rewatched this last night, and I said there is not ten minutes of this movie that is not fascinating to look at. Mm. You can take any ten minute chunk of this movie, and it is engaging. And this was like the way that Fincher tackled this movie is 
he is unrestrained in just I want to do a sequence where we look at a guy's brain and mm-hmm. then we're going to come we're going to pull out of his brain we're going to go out through his mouth and then down the barrel of a gun like in reverse the technology like, caught up to his vision yeah. too at this point yeah and also it's not afraid to you know play with things like text on screen yeah. or you know like breaking the fourth wall like it's not just a narrator but a guy turns around and talks to us and mm-hmm. we talk about the nature of filmmaking and here's what a cigarette burn looks like in case yeah. you're wondering what that is and flashing por- pornographic images in yeah. children's films for his own amusement yeah. and yeah, even there's... even just the, the where early on the Norton character is in his mundane job you see Tyler Durden flash really quick boom, here and there as people are talking to him like, that, that, you know it's coming this, this thing is coming whatever it is um, yeah, I said this is a Fincher with no boundaries. He's unrestrained. Yeah. And I think Seven allowed him yeah. to do this because Seven was so shocking. Exactly. And then how do you how do you top Seven? I don't think he tops Seven with this. It's a totally different film. It's, yeah, it's a different it's yeah. a different element altogether. And um, also some interesting performances from people like Meatloaf. Yeah, he shows up as, as Bob, and that's you know that's oh, it's so bloody likable. In he that, is in that scene or he, that movie. He's the most sympathetic character yeah, in the yeah. piece. So of course, you know. Yeah, you and know also what his early, is. early bit from Jared Leto. Yeah, uh, and um, I wrote down another name of someone, Zach Grenier, as mm-hmm. uh, Norton's boss. Yes, is a very. He's a terrific character. Actually. Yeah, it's a great foil for him, and mm-hmm. they have that wonderful scene where Norton beats himself up. Yeah, and even watching that again, there's. He's, he's pounding the crap out of himself because he's mm-hmm. going to frame his boss for beating him up. And while he's punching himself, he falls back against the shelving unit and then it pauses. And he says, for some reason, I was reminded of my first fight with Tyler. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, well, of course, yeah, because it's violent. But then you realize... time was a fight. No, because it was, was, you were fighting yourself. That's what it is. Yeah. That's what's so clever. Yeah. And that's why, like, this deserves a second watching or even a third yeah. watching to find the little subtleties in it. The, the book, the source material, is also fascinating. Yes. Uh, even darker. Yeah, yeah. Not, not a big surprise there. And I was, um, before I came over, I was just quickly reviewing um, the the author, Jack Pol... I want to say Jack Polanichuk. Or I, I have such a... Yeah, I have yeah. trouble pronouncing it. Polan- my, Polanichuk my or something? Yeah, my yeah. apologies for ruining his name. But he was on the Joe Rogan podcast talking oh, was about it. Oh, yeah. And, and he talked about how this movie and maybe Dead Poets Society are really the only two films before, I mean, maybe films have come out since then, to really be like, this is a movie where guys can sit around and talk about afterwards what it means to be male. Yeah. Or manliness or what have you. Um, and same thing with Dead Poets Society, except for a much younger generation. Mm-hmm. But this is, this movie was all about like exploring manhood or maleness. And... Since then, the phrase toxic masculinity has mm-hmm. come out. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when, when I look at this movie from the perspective of also being a media studies teacher, yeah. a lot of the, the sequences and, and the, uh, the conversations and the dialogue addressing things like consumerism and whatnot versus getting back to, you know, the hunter-gatherer, what, what it means to be male, it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking about, like, afterwards, I'm like, if would ever want to be a part of Fight Club, I'm like, no. <laughs> like someone's like, I want you to punch me as hard as you can. It's like, you know what? I'm gonna go look at an IKEA catalog. That's more my <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? 
but the movie doesn't do any favors to Ikea or Starbucks. Oh, no. They're or, or no, they like don't that. mention Starbucks, but they... You see it's the like they, Yeah, they take the, over, yeah. the labels out so that they aren't sued, I guess. So for, t- for me... Um, and I really, really liked it when I when it first came into theaters. Yeah. Uh, the start of the the DVD boom. I bought it. It was one, one of like an, it's the same one I'm yep. holding right here same, in my hand edition. here. Uh, special edition, yep. double disc, all of these amazing features and commentaries. Yep. It was an unreal release. So I watched it over and over again. Yeah. And and I have I have used it for teaching purposes as well. Mm-hmm. Watching it now again. I went back to a problem I think I had when I saw it in theaters. So this feels to me like okay. it should be like a top ten, a four star out of four movie. Right. And I've always I had it as kind of a three and a half. Mm-hmm. I think the first two acts are solid satire. Correct. Are just perfect, yes. as perfect as satire can be. Yeah. Um, the third act goes into some. Like after the plot twist, and I don't mind the plot twist. This was the same year as The Sixth Sense, which had one of the most famous yeah. plot twists in yeah. film history. It was a great year for movies, so I don't have a problem with that. It is he has hints, it's foreshadowed, everything makes sense with that. My issue is the, th- the third act is absolutely ridiculous. So we've gone to this point where there's this militia that start off with uh, doing, you know, these pranks around the city. This yeah. is another Fincher movie where we don't identify the city that we're actually in right. and we have we could have different ideas about what it is. Yeah. It does have a, a New York feel, but at other times it does feel like other things. But then Norden is trying so hard to fight his um, imaginary friend and he knows that uh, if he knows something, they both know something. And so we have sequence where he gets he's in a police station confessing all of this and all of the police officers are part of this cult now a cult a cult and it makes zero sense that he's able to escape from that police station i don't buy that for a second then he's running through uh the streets of this major american city there seems to be nobody else around uh he has a a really interesting fight in uh underground parking garage in this building Mm -hmm. Um, which is presumably going to be blown up shortly. Yeah. Uh, there are no other cars. There's nobody else there. So I guess maybe the argument was that was the power of this cult that they could get everybody out of a major metropolitan area. But I, I don't buy it yeah, for a I, second. I, I remember watching it and thinking like, you know, like the police are all in it. I'm like, is this is this John Wick? Like what? Yeah. In terms yeah. Of like everyone is somehow part of this massive conspiracy. Yeah. I agree. The third act is. It's it, it just. It's weird. very flashy. It's yeah. very interesting. Again, I, I maybe appreciated more when yeah. I was younger, and it it has all of the the visceral stuff um, that people were kind of expecting from from Fincher. Mm-hmm. Yet it's lacking all of the subtlety. There's yeah. no subtlety to this movie in comparison to Seven, which right. I, I don't know if it's a fair comparison or not because they're different pieces. But if you like, I think a more subtle version of some of the same images and same ideas is the game. Yes, and I, I love the game. And if you just re, let's just pull it in and restrain yes. things a little bit, as sweeping in terms of where we're going through, like the in terms of the narrative, in terms of where the city is set, set yeah. and the way it looks, the game just pulls it in a little bit more. That was the film in between Seven and uh, and Fight Club. I think it came out in '97 or something, yeah. somewhere in there. Yeah, and the, and then so Fight Club pulls it apart again. It, it felt like well, we have to get to this. 
we got to get to this moment where all these buildings blow up and we reset the credit card debt and everything, project man, yada, yada, yada. But, uh, so that felt almost rushed, and yes. so we got to get through that. The, but those first, that whole introduction of our Norton character and him as the tourist of self-help groups, or not self-help groups, these, um, uh, these grief support groups. Grief support or, groups, yeah. yes. And then we meet the Tyler Durden character and their whole ask, their whole relationship. That is awesome. And oh, so if good. it was a more subtle and tight way to end it, I think that would have been yeah. better as opposed to this, you know, now we've got anarchy happening. But, the direction is so, so good. Yeah. The acting is amazing. Yes. You know, there isn't a weakness. I, I appreciate what Pitt was doing. It kind of goes from really charismatic figure to... Yeah outright insanity uh, and he's not afraid to go there and he, he does quite a good job yeah. Norton is probably my favorite performance in the movie yeah. uh, because he's a guy who looks like the boy next door he's yeah. done this in other movies where he could turn on a switch and just with a facial expression and then suddenly you know it's believable all of the all of the horrible stuff that he starts to do and, and it's also say. part of what keeps the film interesting is along the way what you learn like because Norton's character is uh, he basically is a risk assessment manager when it comes to vehicles and so there's a whole sequence where he talks about like okay well we're going to break down what uh, an accident looks like and what, mm -hmm. what does that mean for us as a company and you're like oh I'm fascinated by this or how to make soap yes the making yeah. of soap the making of soap and uh, you know like hey take a look at the, uh, the crash instructions on an airplane you know and here's why these things are and so, not only do we see interesting performances, but we also are educated on really fascinating things. Like, like why the mask comes down on the airplane exactly. to get you high so that yeah. you, don't, you don't panic. Panic. Says, look at them. They all look like Hindu cows, how, yeah. how mellow they all are. And so, when you have a film that also is going to teach you things along the mm -hmm. way, um, that's that extra level of engagement that's really fascinating to look at, too. But, um, but yeah, I think... Once, once we're done with the Fight Club and now it's into Project Mayhem, part of it's whimsical and funny and everything, like the big smiley face burning on the side of the building mm -hmm. and, and you know what they do at, the, uh, at a banquet, but then it kind of spirals out into this strange mass conspiracy thing, and I think that's... It, it kind of go, goes yeah, off. Go off the rails. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's justified in a way, but I, I just didn't, don't find that part. I found it frustrating this time, and... I think I rem remember finding it cool, but like uh, I don't, I don't know. Like they're they're kind of criticizing the system of capitalism, yeah. which I think there's reason to criticize it at points. Correct. Um, but they are using this is 20th Century Fox. This is a studio film. Yeah. This is studio money. They are using the capitalist system yeah. to make this movie where yeah, you know, and the celebration of just destroying yeah, and there's the that, that whole that, world that that great moment when they walk on the bus and. Tyler looks at a, a Gucci, I think it's yeah. a Gucci underwear ad or Calvin Klein ad. Calvin Klein, yeah. He goes, is that what a man looks like? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, dude, you without a shirt, that's what you look like. Well, here, well but here's the other piece. <laughs> you know, it's like, the, what are you talking about? Yeah, the, the one the, where, where it clicks to me, and I think this is just brilliant, it works so well with the satire, is having Brad Pitt, arguably the biggest movie star in the world at that time, or one of them, 
and he delivers this monologue. We were all uh, told when we were young that we would grow up to be these these movie gods, movie stars. Yeah. You are a movie god. You are a movie star. Yeah. So to have him criticizing this is is so and, brilliant. And it's funny because he also says we're all supposed to be you know movie stars and rock gods. Yeah. And he's yeah. saying that there's Meatloaf and there's Jared Leto. <laughs> yeah. Right yeah. 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 And you're like, <laughs> Well, let's hit the pause button on that for a second. And knowing Fincher and yeah. the detail, and I might talk about that with the third film, uh, that all the detail he puts in, he knew exactly what he yeah. was doing with that. And I think Pitt is a guy who doesn't take his celebrity as seriously. Yeah. He takes on some ugly roles for a movie star, and yeah. uh, that's something I appreciate. Um, Brad Pitt, I, I like that he's not afraid to make himself into a, a monster in this movie. Yeah. Or even in, um, in Twelve Monkeys. Oh, Twelve Monkeys, Going, big time. Yeah, yeah. And, and he goes, he goes to the moon, the stars, and the sun with his acting in there. Yeah, but it, it makes sense. He yeah. he does it well. Welcome to Who Wants to Be a So one of the things that I find comparable between Danny Boyle and David Fincher is they both seem to do their own thing and they kind of, they're in the Hollywood system, but they work outside of it. And because of their quality work over the years, they're able to get away with a lot more. Uh, Fincher's been nominated a couple times for Oscars, has not won, even with the social network, which started off sweeping all of the critical prizes, but then he didn't, he didn't get his Oscar. But as it happened, uh, Danny Boyle had a year where this movie Slumdog Millionaire came out and Correct. captured a lot of uh, people's, I guess, imaginations. And it swept the Academy Awards and he won Best Director and it, it won Best Film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is, uh, at points, an unscathing look at uh, slum kids in India. Uh, it's told from the perspective of this young man who's ended up on the... Uh, Indian version of who wants to be a millionaire and has gotten to the point where he is one question away from winning the big prize. He then gets arrested because they're convinced that he's cheating because how could somebody from this low class upbringing know all of the answers to these? It's kind of brutal in places. He's at the beginning, we start off, he's being tortured and we just go through his entire life. And how each aspect of his, his growing up has led to an answer for questions on the show. It's a film that uses a great storytelling technique, and that is to use the police interrogation yeah. as a spinal column mm-hmm. by which you're going to build your story around. And so it justifies a flashback to here, here's a flashback, here's a scene, here's a scene. And then we come back to our, our police chief you know, having the interview. So we're, we're looking at Dev Patel. Yeah. as uh, the star of our feature character Jamal and he's he's been he's a solid actor I, I really like his performance in here yes this was yes. the first time that we you know, he sort of got noticed by a, a broader audience yeah. and great work by a guy named I hope I 
pronounce this correctly, Irfan Khan as the police inspector. Yes. So those two have this great back and forth, back and forth as our framing device. And the thing that it reminded me of was the usual suspects. I was going to say, yeah, it's exactly that idea like that. of this respect that's built up between these two people as we come back to them, as we learn about Jamal growing up. Um, another character that's quite prominent is a character named Salim. And each mm-hmm. Jamal, Salim, and then the, their, their female companion, Latika, are played by three different people yep. uh, as we see the, the story build over the course of mm-hmm. decades. I think the some of the strongest performances by young children. And they are actual children from that that world, as I understand yeah, it. Yeah, there's uh, the boy, I wrote down his name, Ayush Mahesh Kedekar, as the childhood version of Jamal, and um, oh, yes. Azruddin Muhammad Ismail, as the childhood version of Salim, are fantastic. Oh, it's terrific. They're terrific great, acting, yes. great actors and mm-hmm. great performances out of both of them. Um, and it's interesting because I never saw the movie when it came out in theaters, and but the like after it, it came out, it had all this wonderful Oscar buzz, it had wonderful critical buzz. Mm-hmm. Then you get this secondary marketing for it, and all you see is the feel-good movie of the year, Slumdog Millionaire, and picture mm-hmm. of like the two main characters, and you know like. You, you talk to people about it and like, have you seen Slumdog Millionaire? And like, it's got a great dance sequence at the end. And you're like, okay, cool. Then you watch it and you're like, what are they talking about? This is it not is, a feel-good movie. It is dark. Like what? Oh, the part where the kid gets blinded? Uh, because, yes. you know, blind beggars earn more money? Or yes. the part where the guy... A cute blind kid singing in a yeah. beautiful voice. And and so all of these tourists will come through and they'll yeah. you know they'll they'll give him more money. I mean that's or even a little boy doused completely head to toe and uh, in feces and running through yeah and like to see this Indian movie star yeah or, like yeah. this is not the feel good movie of the year. This is dark, and that goes back to something I said earlier is that it's beautifully shot things that are very ugly. Mm-hmm. And um, the first time I saw this film was when I showed it to students. Um, in looking at international literature and international yep. stories. And um, we spent some time looking at some of the criticisms of the film. And one, crit- one criticism was that the, the, the term they used was poverty porn. Mm. That it's mm-hmm. people enjoying watching people in squalid life and finding that thing so fascinating. Mm-hmm. And it, it is a, a, like, if I was you know, India tourism, I'm getting ticked off about this movie mm-hmm. in terms of this is, is this representative of the country, which it, it is, and it maybe it's representative of a, a fragment of it, but as a, um, it's a fascinating movie, it's a great story, um, but it's the, it, I just find it amusing that we're going to call this a feel-good movie of the year, it's like, yeah. mm, I mean, it, it, it's not the Mighty Ducks, it, it, it's yeah, no, no, it's, no, I mean, the, the last several minutes, but we go through a lot, yes. and Maybe we need that happy ending, and maybe that's why it got the Oscar attention. If it had gone for a darker, more realistic ending, yeah. we wouldn't. It wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't have been uh, as successful. Unfortunately, I mean, because uh, I mean, it, these are not happy endings that happen no. to people in in this situation. I, I was, as you were talking, I was I was making some connections which I maybe haven't made before to train spotting. Yeah. I don't think uh, Scotland tourism would like train spotting no, no, <laughs> used. No. So 
I, I think maybe Danny Boyle has a fascination with those who are outside of, um, I don't know, the norm or yeah. in, in, in more difficult situations and how they, they handle yeah. it. Here's what you don't That's see. a connection because when you look at yeah. the two movies, other than they both have a sequence in a toilet too, I guess, yeah. but uh, they're, they are completely different Yeah, here's what you don't movies. see. Here's the behind the scenes things or here's what's in the dark alleys that you don't want to look down as opposed to the... You know the, the the more polished, more romanticized things. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the it's a it's a double edged sword. I, I think this movie actually earns its happy ending, mm-hmm. but you could criticize its happy ending yes. as well. Yeah. But I, I like I like how it's handled, and there is there is some genuine suspense. Oh, yeah, yeah. With this, because he's he's doing the phone a friend, and uh, and she's away from the phone. Frida Pinto? Uh, yeah, Frida Pinto. Frida Pinto is the older. Yeah. Uh, Ladika, who is um, this girl, and she, she she had no family at all. She was They just right. found her in the rain, and she joined these two guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and her journey is, is horrifying yeah. as well. So this, this has kind of a, a happy ending. It has a love story to it. Um, whether you buy that this would actually happen is another thing. It is a movie. The thing is, I really, really liked it. Uh, it was one of my, you know, two or three favorite movies of, of that particular year. So I, I, I wasn't upset that it no. did well. But when I'm talking about these six movies, I, I don't know why I, I was less excited to revisit it. Yeah, it's a movie that I'm happy to watch if it's on. If and when I teach that particular English course, yeah. I'm like, yeah, we're definitely gonna watch this because I want to understand how students feel it's it's one of the nice things about the film if we're going to talk about how you build tension for an audience is one the police interrogation yeah that's a great i mentioned earlier it's a great framing device but it's also as an audience we want to see the police officer kind of start to sympathize with our our main character and then we also back that with a quiz show and so there's the ramping up and the tension that a quiz show builds and so those are great little devices to, uh, uh, to help us tell our story. And um, uh, Anil Kam- Kapoor, I believe his name is, yeah, uh, who plays the, game, him. the yeah. game show host, great, what a great villain. <laughs> well, know? he shows, he's, he's so charismatic and yeah. friendly, and I'm cheering for this guy when yeah. the cameras are on, and then the cameras are off. And yeah. this is a great sequence where he tries to trap yeah. him and just to, to prove that he is, in fact, cheating and... To, you know, to prove him yeah, right. It's a great film. Yeah. <clears throat> but you're right. It's not a movie that I would... It's, that I'm going to go out of my way mm-hmm. to rewatch. Yeah. It's got great moments. And it's a wonderful story. And, and there's some wonderful cinematography as well. Like when we see... Um, I think the slums are being liquidated or burned. And our two boys are running. And we see that... that uh, I believe it's a Hindu god... But it's a yes. child in blue and everything like that, and the the, and the the frame is slightly blurry and everything. And I'm like, okay, this is someone who is unafraid to play with the the form and the media, uh, or the medium, I should say. And you know, so it's a, a, a like like train spotting. This is a guy who's going to, you know, break some rules here and there. Yeah. But it's again, it's not one that um, I'm like, oh, it's a get must see. But if you, if you were to ask me, is a good film? Of course, it's a good movie. Am I going to take two hours out of my 
leisure time to sit down and watch it again because like oh I gotta revisit this no no I'm more than happy to let it pop up as I teach it I don't know if it's because it's just there's some tough stuff in there Mm. um it's funny I I, you know put some of my cards on the table here I I like this film a lot more than train spotting but I I watch train spotting more often than I watch this for some reason I don't know if I'm trying to find a way to like train spotting more because it is considered kind of a 90s classic at this right. point. Slumdog doesn't, I don't feel that it will have the legacy other than, you know, it'll be recorded as an Academy Award winning movie yeah. and uh, history of film in that way. But it will not be talked about in 20 years in the same way the train spotting is for train, some reason. Train spotting's whimsy leads it to having, being, like I said, very episodic. So you can take a sequence of train spotting, you know, like, oh, I love this moment, or let's have this, the, let's take a look at the scene where they're in the park with the air rifle, and yes. you know, they're talking about Sean Connery, yes. and they're shooting the dog yeah. and everything like that. Like it's like that's clever, or you know, him diving in the toilet, that's clever. That opening piece, mm-hmm. Slumdog is interesting throughout, but I can't identify a particular chunk I really want to watch, mm-hmm. you know, or like, oh, I love this sequence with. No, the, the whole thing is fine. The whole thing is good, but it's that rewatchability. I think with some movies is looking for that particular chunk here, looking for that chunk there. Like off the top of my head, the two things I think of is the torture scene at the beginning, right? Because I did not expect that at all. Yeah. Oddly enough, that dance sequence at the end. Yeah. It's uh, kind of unusual curtain call, but I think that was paying homage to Bollywood and to yeah. Indian films and. Uh, yeah, in a respectful way, but it's it's interesting because it's a it is totally an Indian cast, so yes. there isn't like the white hero thing in here. Yeah, but it's interesting to me that they they got a Scottish director um, to to make it. Yeah, instead and of an Indian director, but maybe that's why it got seen more. He he put his name on it, and they wanted a wide audience for the film, and that yeah, that and helped. It's, it's a movie that like. A lot of people in England really love this film. Oh. And even the, the Indian community of England really appreciated yeah. it. Dear Editor, this is the murderer of the two teenagers last Christmas at Lake Herman and the girl on the 4th of July. I want you to print this cipher on the front page of your paper. He wants his code in the afternoon edition. Ray Smith, don't you have a cartoon to finish? The Zodiac Killer has come to San Francisco. Another letter. School children make nice targets. He gave himself a name. Greek, Morse code, astrological signs. This guy's used them all. I like killing people because man is the most dangerous animal of all. How does one do that? I like puzzles. I do them a lot. Got any hard suspects? About uh, 90 an hour. I'm up to around 500. You got four crime scenes. Not a single usable print. You can't think of this case in normal police terms. He's breaking the pattern. So we we have moved in with Slumdog into the 21st century. And Mm -hmm. uh, now we go to 2007 with David Fincher's Zodiac. On the strength of uh, Seven and uh, Fight Club, I think I went into this thing thinking that this is going to be a real dark serial killer movie and we're going to see brutality beginning to end and we'll be left in kind of this strange empty place because, yeah. you know, if you know your history, the Zodiac Killer is stops and is never found. 
And so maybe my reaction was not as positive initially because it wasn't what I thought I was going to get. Mm -hmm. And as I rewatch this movie more and more, it grows in my esteem more and more. This is one of the best police procedurals ever, I might argue. And the the attention to detail that Fincher puts into this movie... Uh, set in, it starts off in, um, uh, ironically enough, the very first sequence is uh, 10 years before I was born, July the 4th, 1969, so yeah. immediately I'm thinking of that. Yeah. So 1969, all through the 70s, he wanted everything to be authentic. Right. The cabs, the vehicles, uh, the setting around San Francisco and the Bay Area. There's a famous story about uh, in the newsroom. There's a lot that happens in this, mm-hmm. the newsroom. They had a, a file cabinet which wasn't period appropriate. It's not a file cabinet that gets used right. at all. But he refused to shoot in, until they got the the actual thing. So yeah. I think it all pays off. It's a movie that shocked me when I heard that it's actually it's more than two and a half hours because mm-hmm. I, I thought it's maybe two hours. It moves at such a good clip. Stellar performances um, from our, our three leads. The Zodiac murders have happened and then we're following kind of three characters and their journeys as well as several other supporting characters. Uh, the main character is played by Jake, Jake Gyllenhaal mm-hmm. uh, and he's a cartoonist um, with the San Francisco Chronicle. And he's really into code breaking. And yes. he starts to figure out things about uh, the Zodiac that others, the police and reporters, cannot figure out. He works with Robert Downey Jr., who is a, a hotshot reporter uh, who covers crime. Then the third character, the main character, is Mark Ruffalo, who is uh, a police detective. Right. Of the three, it's maybe not fair to compare them, Mark Ruffalo's performance is my favorite. Uh, there's these, these subtleties. He has a character voice, which I'm sure yeah. is consistent with the actual man he's playing, which I haven't heard Ruffalo use in, in other movies. Yeah. And there's all these just cool little things. This is a police officer. He, he has to have animal crackers. Yeah. He's always asking for animal crackers, and that yeah. helps him you know, try to figure yeah. things out of these horrible crime scenes. But it's, it's a stellar cast. His, his partner is Anthony Edwards, who is most famous for being on ER. Mm-hmm. Chloe Sevigny plays uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's uh, his second wife. And uh, who else? Dermot Mulroney shows up and right. is, um, I think he's a DA. Uh, Elias Cotillas. Yeah, great yeah, role as yeah a, a Canadian actor. Yeah. Uh, the complication, as we find out with the Zodiac cases, is he went and he killed people in about four different yeah. districts, and each each uh, police force has their their own evidence. Right. But sharing that evidence in the middle of the '70s is a very very difficult Correct. thing, and that's part of the genius of the serial killer. Yeah, and you mentioned like it's a great period piece. It is in terms of capturing an era, capturing the look of of things. Um, it's an interesting story because there, it, it illustrates um, some of the frustrations that police officers go through. And, you know, Morgan Freeman in Seven says, he points out, like, waiting is part of the job. Mm-hmm. You just got to wait for things to happen. And the frustration of, like, but this and this and this, it's like, no, you have to wait. And so we see that a lot with, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal as mm-hmm. the cartoonist who, you know, 
putting together evidence. It's an interesting story in that he's never caught, but by the end of the fo- end of the story, you realize that well, it's been solved. Mm-hmm. It most likely has been solved. Yes, but it doesn't mean that you get the same payoff that you get with uh, uh, like a good old fashioned arrest and a trial. And yeah. this happens and this happens. It's like no, but the pieces have all been put together. We we know it's this guy. Yeah. But they don't have enough to convict them, and right. it's and it's it's terrible. And so the, I mean, not to jump to the last scene of the movie, but uh, Jillian Hall tracks down the guy that they are pretty certain is the Zodiac killer, just so he can look him in the eye. Yeah, uh, and it's really interesting nonverbal exchange that happens. There's a yeah. lot of subtleties. The actor John Carroll Lynch. Has, yeah, he is. He has a scene. Um, I think there's four or five, maybe even half a dozen scenes which are actually scary. So those who are fans of Seven and yeah. uh, you know some of the serial killer stuff, I think there's enough in here for you. Yes. A lot of it is in the first third of the film. We, they reenact um, the the killings by the Zodiac Killer where there was at least a survivor or there were some sort of eyewitnesses. Correct. There are some other killings where they, they don't... They don't reenact them because they just don't have the evidence. It is based on a book by the character, the cartoonist that Jake yeah. Gyllenhaal plays. And we go pretty much from the information that he has. And he, again, I don't know if they dramatize this in the movie, but he becomes so obsessed with this. It, it does affect his family. He puts his family in danger at some points. The This is probably, of the three films, it's going to be my least favorite of the three films. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. Yeah, we might be in a different place than and that one. part of it has to do with, I thought some of it was, like, the word I came up with is over-directed. Like, you know, I'm looking at this opening sequence and the camera is following, like, a, a mail cart mm-hmm. around as it's delivering mail. And I'm like, okay, I get it. Is, I love what you did in music videos. You don't have to do that anymore. You can just, you know, tell, tell the story. I think also part of it is, and this is the nature of this is a piece that is based on reality. Yeah. Is that it doesn't... You mentioned how long the movie is, and maybe as a narrative, it's not as tight, but then again, that's real life. Real life isn't it, a tight narrative. It is narrative. so authentic. Yeah, and so authentic, and so there's these moments of frustration as you're watching it, and you're like, I, maybe when I sit down to re-watch something, I want something that's a little bit tighter. Hmm. Um... I, one thing that Fincher is great at doing, and he did it in all three films, but I think I really noticed it in this, is he's great at two-handers. Just two people sitting and talking. Yeah. And having that be so incredibly fascinating. Uh, the end sequence, when we have Hall and Ruffalo as the detective, and Hall is basically like, look, this is what I was able to put together. And they have this back-and-forth mm-hmm. piece as Ruffalo starts to realize, like, oh, wow, you actually did it. Good for you. And there's great moments like that throughout the film. But I looked at this movie and I said, there's nothing in this movie that I can't YouTube. There's nothing in this movie I can't just, like, show me that one clip. That's what I want to watch. So, for example, if I see a scene from Seven, I think to myself, I really want to go back and watch Seven now, Mm -hmm. that movie. And if I see a scene from Fight Club, I'm like, I really want to watch Fight Club again. If I see a scene from this movie, like a really interesting sequence, I'm like, I really want to go back and watch Mindhunter. It's <laughs> interesting. Okay. You know, because Mindhunter, which is the Netflix series, and I believe Fincher produced it, mm-hmm. does what Zodiac does, but in a tighter format, you know, of exploring these different ideas. 
And that's not not to say there's anything wrong with Zodiac, but of the three films, because it's this long drawn out procedure and it's it's great in terms as a police procedural. I guess maybe the frustration is that oh wow we found this great stuff but it's not going to amount to anything because mm-hmm. me having read enough about the Zodiac Killer I know that you know they didn't yeah they didn't arrest him in the nineties or right. whatever yeah right no. you know this is an act like from the word go you know this is an exercise in frustration mm-hmm. and maybe as a film I'm not willing to sit through two hours or two hours plus of mm-hmm. people being frustrated. Mm-hmm. Even though there is a little bit of validation at the end where it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, I know it's, it's a moment. I got gotcha. yeah. But I gotta go because I'm just a cartoonist. So you'd argue certain sequences you're, you're, you'd certain go sequence. back to and yes. you would watch. Um, yeah. I mean, it's horrifying the couple by by the lake there. Yeah, that, and I mean, it's, it's such an odd... And, and that feels real to me too because yeah. it's not smooth. No. You know, the guy, the guy's kind of awkward in how yeah. he goes about uh, attempting to kill both of these people. And it's in bright daylight, too. And that's also extra creepy. And so that sequence is interesting. The Lover's Lane thing is, the lovers, yeah. is a great opening to the film. Yeah, there are great moments in this piece. Am I willing to sit down and watch them all again? And if the premise of the podcast is, what, what movie are you willing to pull off a shelf, open up your DVD player... And you know, brew some coffee and some popcorn and watch again. For me, it's not going to be Zodiac. It's that's that's a piece that I, you know, I'm sad to say, I'm going to YouTube sequences from it, and then go like, all right, I'm going to hit Netflix again and watch Mindhunter because I think, as a police procedural and also uh, uh, looking at that type of story, Mindhunter scratches the itch for me better than Zodiac. To me, perhaps the the scariest scene for me uh, in any of these, mm-hmm. psychologically, Seven is very scary as a yeah. whole as a whole thing. But the scariest scene for me is Jake Gyllenhaal is in this basement. There's a big thing about there aren't basements in California, in Northern right. California, but he's found a house where there is this basement, and he's been tracking down this lead for this person with this certain handwriting, which is, matches the Zodiacs. Uh, and then he's down in this creepy-ish basement yeah. with this uh, projectionist from a movie theater, right. owner of the movie theater. And then the guy says, oh, no, I, I, I'm the one who, uh, who wrote on the movie posters. It wasn't this person. Yeah. And there's this kind of a, this moment where Jill Hall, like, I might be trapped in a basement with the Zodiac yeah. killer. It's so scary. Well acted. Yes, um, Absolutely. I go back to those moments, but I'm also fascinated by the the, the whole thing. It's, so uh, to me, it's it's the least flashy of the three Fincher films. But I, I feel like it's it's like um, a, a great novel that you read, and mm-hmm. you've had to work to earn it. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm willing to go to the point where I say that it's better than Seven yet. I know I have some friends who have the unpopular opinion that it is better than Seven. Yeah. Um, but it is way better than Fight Club for me. I think the third act falls apart for me in Fight Club. Yeah, that's Zodiac is one I, oddly enough, I was like really excited to talk about. Probably the most excited of the three Fincher films to talk about, and it's maybe because it is the the least watched. Yeah, the the least successful only, in some ways. And I've only seen it the one time. And, oh, okay. And so, so that might be it. And maybe that's it. Maybe because my first, I, I was expecting something, and I walked out of the movie yeah. theater saying. It's pretty good, yeah. But it's no seven. It's no 
Fight Club, but it's right. given given some time with it and going back to it a few times, I it it is really uh, really grown in my esteem. I I really think that I don't know. In ten years, I might be saying it's my favorite Fincher film, but who knows? I mean, Seven is just so so good. It, I I don't know if he'll ever be able to to top that. Yeah. It, as far as this this genre, at least, yeah, and and I think Zodiac, the as it as it gets deeper into the story, I mentioned earlier, there is that frustration, and and you because you're feeling frustrated along with the police, mm-hmm. but I th- I think some of the the performances get better and stronger as we go closer to the end, and and we see like for example the breakdown of Robert Downey Jr.'s character, and, and yeah. what have you. It's it's not as and it's tight, like we said, because it's real life, and real life isn't tight, and real yeah. life isn't scripted. Yeah. And so maybe for me, that's where it falls apart a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to contradict myself when it comes to our next film, when it okay. comes to real life. But mm-hmm. uh, I think maybe that's why I didn't, I didn't care for it as much. Um, I love the subject matter. I think because I love police procedurals. I think uh, the 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 hunt for serial killers is fascinating. Yeah. And the lengths that people go to um, to, to try and, and, and make this sort of thing happen, I think that's why I keep coming back to Mindhunter, mm-hmm. doing scratching the itch for me better than this movie will. Well, I should watch Mindhunter. I haven't watched it yet, so okay. Uh, and I th- then yeah, then later on we can talk about. Yeah, I think if that. you if you watch Mindhunter, you're okay. you're going to take a step back and go like, oh, okay. Now I know what he's saying. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is Zodiac the series, but it's, it focuses on a different person each time. Yeah. And yeah, so that will be that that makes the conversation cool. changes it for yeah. me. Uh, the, the other piece, I just I, I think I'm a sucker for the '70s aesthetic in, in films. Sure. I, 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 horror movies that will go back and, and be set in the '70s yeah. because the horror movies in the '70s were amazing. They somehow work for me yeah, more than they maybe have any right to. Yeah, I think of Texas Chainsaw Massacre yeah. as a great example. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, again, I I think I like it more than you do. I'm, I'm glad because we've been agreeing pretty much on all of these. Yeah. So I'm glad there's a little bit of a slight disagreement yeah, here. This is my of the three films. Of three Fincher films, Fincher films. Going to be my least favorite. Okay. What do you do? You're not an engineer. You're not a designer. You can't put a hammer to a nail. I built the circuit board. The graphical interface was stolen. So how come, ten times in a day, I read Steve Jobs as a genius? What do you do? Musicians play their instruments. I play the orchestra. I hear you've been worse than usual this morning. I didn't think that was possible. It's a system error. Fix it. Fix it? Yeah. We're not a pit crew at Daytona. This can't be fixed in seconds. You didn't have seconds. You had three weeks. The universe was created in a third of that time. Well, someday you'll have to tell us how you did it. Okay, so this is our newest of the six movies we're looking at. And this is Steve Jobs. Um, directed by Danny Boyle, I think a big piece in here is the screenplay by Aaron Sorkin. Fair enough. Aaron Sorkin, I had to ease into enjoying his work, and now I'm I'm full full board on with Sorkin. I will watch anything that he is involved with, whether it be theater, television, or films. Yes. And I think this is one of his finest screenplays. Uh, it takes a, a biography of and quite a good biography of Steve Jobs 
but focuses on three key moments in his life where he is launching new products. Right. One is the Macintosh computer, one is the Next computer, and then the iMac. And these are not all successful launches, right. but they all say something about a time in the career of Steve Jobs and uh, there's a really kind of interesting structure yeah. to these three incidents, these three acts. I think it could actually work as a stage play as much as a film. That's is, what fascinated me about this movie. It when is. I watched it late, when I thought about it later on, I was like, wait, 90% of this movie takes place in a theater yeah. before he's about to launch something. Yeah. And I never clued into that. So you know, the funny thing about this movie is when I saw your list, uh, these are the six movies we're going to cover. Yeah. I'm like, okay, gotcha. Good, good. Slumdog. Okay. Steve Jobs. What the heck is that like, doing I on there? I, yeah. I'm like, I didn't even know that was a movie. Yeah. Okay. So then I went and tracked it down, and it was the movie I was looking forward to the least. Yeah. You thought it would be homework, probably. Yes. Yeah. Of the Boyle films, it was the one I liked the most. Yeah. I love this yes. movie. Yes. And I do too. Yeah. And I remember, like, when I put it in the DVD player, I'm like, this is. This is going to be the social network, only it's Jobs' version of the social network. And boy, was I wrong. No. It was so, like, boom. This computer doesn't say hello. we got to get it to say hello. And I'm like, I'm in. And it was so well-crafted just to do that, that piece with, you know, let's do, let's do it before the launch of each, each element here. Um, There's and, this pressure because yeah. it's, it's just before this is going to happen. So yeah. each sequence they're living up in like uh, you know high stress high tension moments correct and what um what's interesting is if we look at it with the compared to the other two we're looking at uh, uh train spotting and we're looking at a world that hopefully most of us are very unfamiliar with mm -hmm. you know like heroin and and you know living poor in scotland and with slumdog millionaire it's a world i'm very unfamiliar with mm -hmm. the, the idea of the the street crime of the exploitation of children in Mumbai. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows about Apple. Yes. Everybody knows what a Mac is. Yeah. Everybody has an iPhone. This is a world that we think we know, but it turns out we don't no. as much as we think we do. Like So he's taking something that's incredibly familiar to us and you're like, oh, oh wow, this is, this is interesting. Like, and I'm so glad they didn't do like, well, you know, here's the story of Steve Jobs growing up. Yeah, I, like a stuff. traditional biopic. Yeah. In some ways, I thought they were, might do that because the source material does. Yeah. Talk about his upbringing and and it's it's a very interesting uh, chronology of his life. And and so I, I think I was maybe I had the the biography in my mind, mm -hmm. and then it's well, why are we starting here? It's like, oh, I see what he's doing now. Yeah. So I think I, I clung on to Sorkin's screenplay because the dialogue is so, so good. Yes. It's fast-paced. Uh, I'm a sucker for talk, yeah. talky movies um, because I work in theater. Maybe that's yes. why I, I like it so much, and that's where Sorkin got his start and still was, does work in theater. But it wasn't what I was expecting it to be, and, and, and so... Um, Right, I, I think uh, you, you you also like that it's not yeah this isn't Ray or I, or or whatever like yeah. one of those. I told my brother about the film and I said it's like The Big Short 
only I can understand it. <laughs> yes, that's a good you know? point. Yeah, like because the like I'm fascinated by people who are experts in their element yeah. arguing about what they're what they're passionate yeah. about. But if it's something I don't understand, then it's like, well, I don't care. But this I understand. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. I got. Um, and also realizing because I had never really read up about Steve Jobs or knew anything. What a horrible person. Oh yeah. And again, I was talking to my brother about the thing, and he said the great irony is that Microsoft was always seen as this corporation, this like the Borg, and they were you know this this horrible corporate entity. Mm-hmm. But the guy behind Microsoft is this wonderful philanthropist. Yeah, you know. And then you have Apple, who are the rebels, who are the underdog, and mm-hmm. we're just we're the dreamers, we're the or the we believe we create and you know here's me I'm Steve Jobs I'm this wonderfully thoughtful person and you know he's this hippie vegetarian yeah and it's like we just need to you know re re-examine the world and then you realize like you're a horrible person you're not a good person at all yeah. and it's like you know and uh, uh, Seth Rogen as uh, uh, Steve, Steve Wozniak yeah. as that wonderful moment he's like what do you do <laughs> you know and he's like this is what I do I I. I put all the pieces together and I know what pieces to cut they, and your piece I'm going to cut right now. They're in that uh, because he, it just seems like they start talking about, he starts talking about this, uh, this orchestra, yeah. this piece of music um, and the conductor. Yes. And like, why is he, why is he talking about this? And then we get the payoff at the end of the scene. It's like, I, I'm the conductor. Yeah. All of you are following me. That's what I do. Yes. And, and certainly, I mean, as far as, you know, publicity and marketing, um, uh, his a- attention to detail, Right. he was a genius, but geniuses are very, very difficult people to yes. be around, especially yes. when they know they're geniuses. He knew he was a genius, so he was arrogant beyond belief, and he treated people as just these pawns to make yeah. his vision come true Wozniak is the it wouldn't have worked if it wasn't for Wozniak and in each sequence he gets treated horribly by Jobs yeah, yeah. it's just a horrible person the, the the two elements that I was sort of interested in or I shouldn't say interested that I stood out for me and one is Michael Fassbender of course so good he is really really good in his performance but the one thing I, I actually paused the film to look something up and as great as Fassbender is, he's, I believe he's Irish-German. And every so often, like, he struggles to dump his accent. And it's okay when you're playing, you know, uh, a supervillain like Magneto, or if you're going to play one of the 300 Spartans. Yeah. But if you're playing a guy from Palo Alto, California, you better scrub your accent. And even though he was fascinating to watch and he's so well acted, for me, I'm just like, I was having trouble getting past his accent. Okay. Popping up here and there. But while I have the movie paused, I'm looking on my, ironically enough, iPad, and I'm mm-hmm. looking at quickly at the film, and I'm like, when does Kate Winslet show up? <laughs> because I'm like, she's got a, she's in this, she's very high profile. Is, yeah. Is, he, is she going to show up at the end and have this great big scene? Because she's like, they get, wait a minute, that's Joanna Hoffman. That's, yeah. yes. Oh my God! What a disappeared into the role. What a chameleon! That's why yeah. I wrote chameleon. Oh yeah. my God! I couldn't believe it was her. And that, that the the dialect that she has, yeah. I have never heard anything before or since. Absolutely, and I was just I had to stop and think about that for a second mm-hmm. because you know as English teachers, I'm always going to think of her as Ophelia 
in the 96 Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Or, mm-hmm. you know, of course, her on the boat and watching Jack drown. Yeah, Sense and Sensibility to yeah. a lesser extent. And, and you yeah. know, her, and the reader, and her roles in these very yeah. artsy type of European yeah. films. And then here she is, and I had to stop and, like, that actually blew me away. Like, this was this is her the entire time. Like, an absolute, like you said, she disappears. Yeah. And she is this person. She, she very nearly won her second Academy Award for this. She's great. I, I guess I, I haven't, I didn't have a problem with Fassbender, and uh, his dialect wasn't bothering me as much. Mm. And I think I went back and I listened to some of uh, Job's talks and maybe yeah i think there was something where jobs would over enunciate in that way uh yeah so i I bought it um i i I should say i didn't buy it but i for some reason it it distracted you and put you out of the movie for a little bit i was aware of it and i i understand what you're saying yeah and even even like one of the (laughs) one of the things that seth rogan is going to have to deal with as an actor is he's always seth rogan yeah, and he, he just, was a little bit. It's just different degrees of Seth yeah. Rogen. Yeah, but you know, it's like okay, you want you as you know Seth Rogen as a guy who is passionate about working on the Apple. I buy that, and he looks like Wozniak yeah. enough. Yeah. Uh, this was serious Seth Rogen. I appreciate yeah. him being in something a little mm-hmm. bit more serious. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I'm a, enough of a fan of Seth Rogen. Right, I, I think he is. You're right. He's in his, at least in his comedic work, yeah. he's playing a different version of himself. Yeah. I, I was impressed with him in Knocked Up, but since then, it's been yeah. kind of the same thing. But yeah, and uh, it, it's nice that he's in here, and it's a very important role that he plays. Right. And so, backing this against Zodiac, we're looking at two films that are based in reality, mm-hmm. and I think this movie just did it so much better for me because it was tighter. Mm-hmm. And it's like very you, tight movie, like you said. This could have began with him as a teenager, and then mm-hmm. you know it's like, what do we? Need? It could be a three-hour epic, yeah. Yeah, what do we need? We need this moment here. We need a flashback, flashback. <laughs> Here's this moment. A couple flashbacks. Boom. The moment with his daughter. He goes mm-hmm. out on stage. Yeah. And then it's like, great. That's yeah. We've we've narrowed it down. We've boiled it down to the essence of what we need. What the audience needs the most out of this, out of this string, out of this story. What is it? The let's let's trim it down. And so for me, that's why it worked as a film really well. And that, why, which is also why beforehand I wasn't looking forward to it because I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's good. I'm sure it's interesting. But I'm just not ready to watch the story of a guy's life. Mm-hmm. And it begins like, well, we got to get this thing to talk. And I'm like, whoa, that's where we're at. Mm-hmm. We're, not, mm-hmm. we're not learning about his formative years. No, we're getting right in the middle you of it. Good enough. Yeah. Great. Awesome. Yeah. Let's cut to the chase. Yes. Structure work, there's a lot with threes in this. Yes. Um, so we have the three launches, the three acts of the film. Yeah. Um, and uh, depending on how you want to do this, if you want to go with it, it's the three wise men or the uh, the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we talked about Wozniak, I might argue, is the you know the ghost of Christmas past. Yes. Because they go back to the that quick flashback of where they're coming up with the yeah. idea in the, the garage. Uh, we have Jeff Daniels in here. Yeah, John Scully. Yeah, John Scully. I, I I love Jeff Daniels. Jeff Daniels masters Aaron Sorkin's dialogue. Yes. Um, he was great on the newsroom. I, I had the pleasure of being in New York last February. I saw him play Atticus Finch in wow. Sorkin's adaption of To Kill a Mockingbird. Wow. Um, and there were these Sorkin touches that 
that uh, Daniels is just so good at that. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's kind of in the background here, but he he has his three scenes and yes. and, and they are strong. Um, and this is very much like you know uh, Jobs had had issues, father issues, mm-hmm. and this is a guy who he saw as his father, but who betrayed him by right. kicking him off of the board at, at Apple, and then kind of the revenge ish thing happens. Yeah. The other one is. Um, uh, Michael uh, Stuhlberch, uh, he's, he's been in some Coen Brothers stuff. He's a fairly regular presence in a lot of TV and movies. Um, playing Andy Hertzfeld, who is uh, <clears throat> another one of these technical geniuses. He's the one who's, you know, get it to talk or do this for all of these presentations. Right. And he, this is a guy who knows Jobs' family more than Jobs knows himself and is is filling yes. in to the, the gaps yeah. where Jobs is a flawed father. Yes. Right? Um, and especially in that third sequence, it makes a real a real impact. Yeah. And so each of those interactions in all three parts are amazing. Winslet is sensational, mm-hmm. disappears in the role, and is kind of the Steve Jobs whisperer is the best way to put it. Like, yeah. She <clears throat> appears to be the only person who can tell him the truth. Right. He doesn't always listen. He argues about it, but he lets her get away with that. And it's I, it's interesting because me having worked, I, I don't know if Steve Jobs has ever been officially diagnosed as being on spectrum or not. Mm-hmm. But having you know worked with so many students who are on the autism Asperger spectrum, and I remember reading an article about about autism and Asperger's and Asperger's was called one of the nicknames for it is Silicon Valley Syndrome hmm. and that's because so many people in the computer uh, world um, struggle with with autism and to have a guy who like Jobs like when I saw that performance and she was the one who's able to get through and she's mm-hmm. like this is the way this is and he's like but I don't understand like we need to get us to talk I need your shirt give me your shirt yes. and I think that's how Fassbender's playing yeah, jobs. Yeah, yeah, and so that's that's just what came into my head. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Is is that whole the, the way he he's portrayed like that? So it's it's again it's a great performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, the little my little quibbling with the accent aside, yeah. it was really strong and it, fascinating for a movie that's nothing but conversations. And and with the like the Aspergers idea, yeah. Um, that that leads to to me one of the most heartbreaking scenes in the movie is I believe it's the middle the middle section here. Yes. There's this moment. There's the the daughter is a very very crucial part of this, mm-hmm. yeah. and he initially denied that this was his child, and yeah. it was very it was publicized, and the girl found out, and it you know affected yeah. her life, and in the middle part we're going through these like bitter divorce issues. Yeah. Um, suggested that that, that uh, the mother of, of his child is is fairly dysfunctional she's been given right. a lot of stuff by jobs but uh, and uh, the daughter comes up to jobs and says I want to live with you and hugs him mm-hmm. and you see in Fassbender's performance this guy doesn't know what to do yeah he that's as helpless as he looks yeah. in here yeah. is when she's this little girl is hugging him it's just heartbreaking it is it is. And it's subtle. It's powerful. Yeah. It's not big music playing or anything like that. Yeah. I love the music in there. Uh, it, it has that kind of like computer music, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the in the yeah. first sequence, yeah. the 1984 sequence. Yeah. And it's also interesting, like, from my perspective as 
someone who's taught media studies, and we spend a lot of time looking at um, Apple as a marketing, to, as a, <coughs> a marketing entity, and just how Apple, how influential Apple was in terms of the, the world of um, product placement. Yeah. And I'm glad we spent time talking about that Ridley Scott <coughs> yes. Apple commercial, yeah. and how from a uh, from advertisers who look at that that piece is like, that's that is one of the most amazing commercials mm -hmm. ever made but at the same time it failed yeah and <clears> one <throat> of the big criticisms was like you never saw the product you know you know, it's, it's it's a little mini movie it does nothing what does it do and and jobs trying to get across the idea like but that's what was so great about it. yeah and so to see that really scott directed it yeah too. It, it was it was a big deal I mean, yeah yeah and so it, and it basically kicked off the super bowl ad like, yeah redefined what advertising yeah. is and and so scully was opposed to it and still yeah. argues about it in yeah. in that scene that it was yeah even some even going so far as to if you look at a typical macbook or even any laptop mm -hmm. the way that a logo is placed is because of steve jobs yeah. and him watching i think it was sex in the city and he's like why is our logo upside down on the character's laptop and they said oh so that well when the consumer buys the product they look at the thing and they feel good about the apple image and he says they already bought it they feel good enough he goes i want that to be advertising so flip Flipped the logo it. so that mm -hmm. when it comes up everyone sees the apple on television and now you know uh, we do it with our dells and our hps yes like him just to be just to look at those little things and say like yeah that's that needs to change that needs to change i mean he saw the future i yeah. i think now tim cook is a nicer person as i understand it yes and uh, he's going in some directions that Jobs would have fought tooth yeah. and nail with, uh, with their products. Um, but the, the idea of having um, all of your music in your phone or in a compact, yeah. now, I mean, yeah. it's all wireless. I mean, but it also showed physical ownership yeah. of, of music is a, is a rare thing now. But the, also the film touches on one of the frustrations with Apple, and that is like people are like, well, how do we get into this thing? People want to, people want to modify it. He's like, no, it's my design. Yeah, it's my thing. It's this is you don't get to this, and to even today, that's one of the frustrations that yeah. people have with Apple is their products is not being able to crack it open and and you know I have a I have an iPod Classic, and it's breaking down, mm -hmm. and I tell people like, can you fix it? And they're like, this isn't designed to be fixed. This no. is designed to be tossed out, and yeah. you buy a new thing. <laughs> I don't want one. But again, that's and for that's Jobs being like kind of a free love hippie that he was. He uses the the system of capitalism really, really well and planned it out so that they will always yeah. do well. Um, but as a you know, getting back to the pulling back to the movie. Yes, yeah. I, you know, I think that as a movie, it's so it's very well crafted, and you can you know you mentioned your theater love theater. This is easily transferable. Oh, it would to, be a, a terrific play. Yeah, if. And it's just like, because all you need is a screen and, you know, three yeah. or four people out yeah, there. Yeah, there's one, I think, one scene outside, the flashback in the garage, which could easily be done, but one yeah. key scene towards the climax of the film that's outside, but yeah. that's that's it. It's a very much an indoor, talk-heavy. Yeah. You get and the right so actors. And, I was, and they have the right actors in this this movie, yeah, I would argue. Pleasantly, so. very pleasantly surprised. Good. This one. Yeah, for me, of the three Fincher films, Zodiac was the one that's, 
I almost want to champion a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Of the three Boyle films, Steve Jobs is the one I want to champion more because I don't think they got the audiences that they deserve. Right. Steve Jobs got a bit more critical praise, got a few Academy Award, two Academy Award nominations um, for uh, Winslet and for Fassbender, but uh, is not thought of as much. We haven't talked yeah. about Danny Boyle at all. No. And so it's, it's his most subtle film. I mean, he's in the right. background, but the pacing of it... Uh, I think he could be credited for yeah. and inc- the incorporation of music and again going back to whatever connection he has with how to uh, put music into a film there's he times one, that so well and there's one sequence where we have um, sorry my apologies where we have Fassbender and Winslet talking mm-hmm. and he Boyle projects some film that, oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And it's just, amazing. Just to kind of talk. Mm-hmm. So that to give their conversation context, we're going to project this thing on a wall. And that was the most gimmicky, if you want to use that word, of the film techniques, as opposed to like, you know, some of the blatant text we saw in some of the, the other pieces. That was about, so it, he is restrained. It's a little more subtle, but he mm-hmm. goes, I'm going to drop this in here just to give their conversation some additional light. And so that was. This might have also been a challenge for him too, because he yeah. is a quick cut type of guy. If yeah. you, because there's a, several other movies I could I could give you that that show like he he lives in the you know fast paced mm-hmm. world. Even these independent movies he did for the BBC yeah. to test out digital filmmaking before he made Twenty Eight Days Later. Yeah, they they move fast. Yeah, and so he he is more restrained as a director here. He lets the yeah. script do the work, and if I have an Aaron Sorkin script, I'm 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 going to do that. Yeah, but I, I still feel he's present in that. There. That goes back to the three pieces that we're looking at of his and how different they are. Yeah, and you know I was joking to myself was I was watching. Steve Jobs, I'm like, no one's running, you know? Like, no, there's no, no one's running. No. no one's running. There's nothing, there's, there's no great big, you know, like the, the, the tension that's built up with the speed and the, the drama and everything like that. It's just people trying to figure out how to get this mm-hmm. computer to talk. Mm-hmm. It's still it tense. Talk, it's yeah, still tense. It's still high stress, talk, but it's. You're done. You're done. You're fired. This isn't going to happen. I'm burning this theater. Like, all yeah, of it. Yeah. So it's really smart how it's done and gives the guy credit in terms yeah. of. Highly recommended. People should check out Steve Jobs if they have not. Yes. Now it's time for us to distribute 60 marks each between these six strong movies. I think I, I didn't I didn't put many weak ones in here, so right. this is this is kind of a tough uh, tough thing here. Yeah. Okay, I think we sorted out uh, the math here. So uh, 60 points to distribute among the six films here. So uh, how many points did you give seven? I'm throwing uh, 12 points to seven. 12 points to seven, and I know you love that movie. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Train Spotting. Uh, Train Spotting gets 10. 10. And Fight Club. Fight Club also gets 10. As well. All right. 
Slumdog Millionaire. Uh, Slumdog, I'm giving eight points eight to Slumdog. points. Zodiac? Zodiac gets nine from me. Nine. And Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs gets 11 from me. 11. Okay, so we're not that different. I think there's there's one, uh, two movies in here where there's a little bit of a difference here. Um, I, I gave 13 points to seven. Um, I had trouble deciding. There's, there's three that are going to get 13 here, yeah. so 25 points for seven. And I, I gave only five to Train Spotting. Interesting. So train Spotting, uh, to me, was, I'm still struggling with it. Uh, but I just in, in comparison to these other films, okay. it was the lowest I gave. Eight points for Fight Club. Uh, I have some problems with it, but it is still a solid movie. And it's mm-hmm. you, you have to rewatch it for sure. Yes. Slumdog, we were exactly the same. Eight po- points each. Uh, solid movie, but again, it's, it's just not... It might... I might argue it's the least exciting of these six. Uh, Zodiac, uh, I gave 13. Okay. Uh, so I gave quite quite a few more points to, to Zodiac. So its total is 22. Yep. Steve Jobs, I gave 13 as well. Okay. And so it has 24. So as it works out, so 24 for Jobs. Uh, so it's 25 for 7. 24 for Jobs. 22 for Zodiac. 18 for Fight Club. 16 for Slumdog Millionaire, and uh, 15 for Train Spotting. So Train Spotting is the movie that I now have to remove from my collection. It is a Blu-ray copy of Train Spotting. So what would you like me to do? With this Blu-ray, uh, I think um, the film has merit. Uh, I think it's got its place in the history of uh, Danny Boyle's work, and so I would like to see you take it to a uh, public library and donate it. Donate to a public yes, library so that other people can. I love see that. It. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Thank you again so much for doing this. I hope this we can get so you fun. in again. Absolutely. And, uh, this was so much fun. Yeah, terrific. And uh, it sounds like we pretty much in sync with our movie tastes. Just a few differences with Zodiac, but yes. that's uh, that's about it. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Right. Thank you so much. Okay, great. second episode of the shelf shedding movie show as i sacrifice my blu-ray of train spotting and i donate it to a public library which is a great decision by my guest dan boudet i want to thank him again for being on the show uh if you would like to give some feedback on the show please email me at shelf shedding movie show at gmail.com or check out my facebook page the shelf shedding movie show check out my friend larry parson show rank and review if you love movie podcasts he does a genre-based podcast and releases an episode every two weeks until episode three i look forward to talking to you again about movies